Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up a mountain. He sat down, and his disciples came to him. He taught them, saying, Happy are people who are hopeless, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are people who grieve, because they will be made glad. Happy are people who are humble, because they will inherit the earth. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be fed until they're full. Happy are people who show mercy, because they will receive mercy. Happy are people who have pure hearts, because they will see God. Happy are people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. And happy are people whose lives are harassed, because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you, all because of me. Be full of joy and be glad, because you have a great reward in heaven. In the same way, people harass the prophets who came before you. You all pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words, um, words that we um, can and should build our lives on. And um, I ask that you uh, help me um, talk about these words in a way that honors you, um, that makes uh, more of you and less of me, um, and that uh, contributes to uh, the flourishing of this um, community, this body of Christ. Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was sitting this week in the co-op working on this sermon, as I often do. Some of you have seen me there. And a friend named Kenneth was asking me about what I was working on. And I said, the Beatitudes. Uh, and all of a sudden, this lady at a table next to me, who I recognized but hadn't noticed, whips her head around and says, I knew it had to be you because I couldn't think of anyone else who would be sitting at the co-op talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And so I am so glad for that. If there's a way I can work that onto a business card or onto my tombstone, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do so. Sitting at the co-op, thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. During this cycle of readings in Epiphany, the season of unveiling and understanding, we're treated to the start of Jesus's ministry according to Matthew's gospel. Let's remember the bookends of Matthew's good news. Do we remember how Matthew starts and ends? I, I think those bookends give away the main thrust of, of, of that good news. Matthew 1, 23 is what we read at Christmas time. Quoting Isaiah, he says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. And he even gives us little brackets that say, which means God with us, for those of you who don't speak Hebrew or Aramaic, right? And then the end, flip pages forward in Matthew's gospel. Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Matthew starts by saying, God with us, and ends with Jesus saying, I will be with you. In the middle of these bookends of divine intimacy and proximity, we find an unfolding story of the kingdom breaking in in the same way Jesus' prayer says, on earth 
as it is in heaven. Truly big things are happening. In heaven, even more than 2,000 years later, fully finished happening. For God to come with, to be with us, to make up all the distance that humanity has put between us and God through sin, through avoidance, through stubborn insistence to not walk with God, God still wants to be with us. God must not only love us, God must actually like us, right? Jesus' bold pronouncement then to start his ministry, to start his preaching ministry, in the key of John the baptizer, in the prophets before him, is that the kingdom of the heavens is here, is at hand, right under our noses. It's arrived. This downward coming, like, circumambient, this thing that is all around us, this at-hand kingdom is here. It's breaking in. You can see it. You can feel it. You can experience it for yourselves. You can build it with God and with others. So today's reading opens with what's often known uh, as the Sermon on the Mount. It, it opens the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably something more of a hillside, uh, to be honest, like a rustic amphitheater where this new rabbi was going to, like, unveil his shtick. Any teacher worth their salt would have like an angle, a vision of who God is, a vision of the good life, a vision of what the scriptures are saying, a vision of how to live. And this was Jesus's chance to make a big impression. When I first moved to Durham in, gosh, 2006, I had a couple jobs. And one of which was at a coffee shop, which was really great because you get to meet a lot of people. And I still, uh, even mm, 13 years later, I'll still see some of those people around town. And I always remember their face, sometimes remember their drink, and even less often remember their name. Uh, but there's this weird recognition, this flash of recognition when I see like two Splenda Caramel Macchiato, uh, you know, walking around the, the co-op or uh, the farmer's market or something, right? Um, but I also had a ministry job, and this ministry job was resourcing 20-some-odd schools in the Triangle. So I put a lot of miles on my car to make sure things were going okay, right? Uh, very early in the morning to go uh, meet with some middle schoolers or preach like, have, have you ever preached a four-minute um, middle school football chap chapel service? It's pretty great. Um, but my favorite part of that job was when I got to settle in and lead a group of guys who asked me to lead um, a Bible study in the basement of Jarvis Dorm on East Campus at Duke. It was, it was about a dozen guys, undergrad guys, at Duke. And over the course of two years, and this is, you know, all the semesters and summers uh, interspersed, we dug into this Jesus Sermon on the Mount and didn't even finish. That's how slow we went every single week plowing the ground in this slow sermon. And it was there with those guys that I actually got more and more of an imagination of what my life in Durham and eventually in Lakewood would be like. It's there that I found out that I was supposed to be a pastor because of the slow chewing on God's word and the developing a vision that Jesus is giving us for, for what our lives 
are supposed to be for and what this kingdom of God in our midst is like. So uh, I, I invite you um, to not make this a, a Sunday morning thing, but to, to continue to chew on these words and let them spark in your imagination what they could actually mean for us. So you see, these words um, were hard for us when we were studying this because I had all these, all these uh, very intelligent, often privileged uh, guys uh, in the basement of this dorm who were used to there being an answer and them getting that answer right and then being rewarded for getting that answer right. And much to their chagrin, much to my chagrin, much to probably our collective chagrin, I'm not so sure years later, and I'm not speaking as an expert, but someone commending this to you, I'm not so sure that Jesus is really laying out a prescription for how we should make ourselves part of God's kingdom, how we should do any of this for ourselves, how, how we should achieve the status of citizens of God's kingdom. That was a big bummer for those guys. Uh, that's why it took us so long. We had to keep going back, right? The, the word that Matthew records off Jesus' lips for all these things is sometimes translated as blessed. The translation I uh, read said happy. It's a really hard word for us to understand because it's not really a dependent word on us. And often those words get really jumbled for us because like, don't we all want to be happy? Don't we all have hashtag goals to be hashtag blessed, right? Like, uh, and so Jesus's, Jesus's promise to us seems like something that we should start working on. But what if Jesus is not asking us primarily to try hard to live like this, to become poor, whether materially or in spirit, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger, to be pure, to be peacemakers, to be persecuted? What if that's not the primary test. What if primarily Jesus is looking out his like metaphorical window, so to speak, and just describing what the kingdom of God already looks like and who the early adopters are? What if that's what he's doing? What if this is so real and so concrete? Jesus isn't casting a campaign vision for down the road, but Jesus is, is saying it's here and this is what it's like. And these ones that I'm, that I'm talking about these least likely ones are becoming or have already become the ones most likely to receive and accept Jesus's upended imagination. It's precisely the, the poor, spiritual or otherwise, who are able to most easily accept the good news. I'm talking like Isaiah 61, Luke 4, good news, good news to the poor, freedom to the oppressed, sight to the blind. They're able to receive it as good because their news up until this point hasn't been so good. Their going has been pretty rough. So for them, a kingdom that involves a massive reversal isn't really a threat. It's, it's a happy promise. They're already so close to the middle of the seesaw. Do we remember how that worked when, when you were in the playground? If you were at the end of the seesaw and someone bigger than you jumped on it, that was pretty threatening. If you were in the middle of the seesaw, it didn't matter how big they were, you weren't moving much. And that's how the poor are on this. They don't get catapulted off, but they rather find a seat of rest for the first time in quite some time. For them, kingdom reversal isn't a threat, it's a relief. 
They are and will be stakeholders in what is becoming along with the meek of the earth. Because this is the place where God is with us. And where we're with God, the kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Earth is a good place to be, close to the ground. There are also a handful of these blessings that we simply can't really work ourselves into, or it'd be really hard to. Like mourning. Like, sure, there's some sense that if you are a really emotionally aware and mature person, there is always something to be in mourning over around us. But frankly, those in mourning are blessed not by their own virtue. The whole point is that whatever is outside of them or maybe even from within them that is causing them to mourn is most likely something downstream of the fall. It's a product of sin and death, and it's the territory of the powers and the principalities. In the morning are going to be comforted because, well, that curse is being reversed. That stronghold is being weakened. That binding is being unraveled, being loosed. In, in Lord of the Rings lingo, everything sad is becoming untrue. This is the comfort of God seeing and knowing and hearing and actually doing something about your pain. That's why those who are mourning are blessed and will be comforted. They're blessed even before they're comforted. Another one of these like stative, static blessings might be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These, I don't think Jesus is primarily talking about folks who are fighting for justice for others. I think Jesus is talking about those who are being crushed under the wheel of injustice themselves. And Jesus is calling them blessed. They hunger and they thirst because they are starving for a reality that they don't and can't know. And it feels like hunger pangs. They're keenly aware every second of every day. These are... These are the ones in refugee camps and those who are constantly fearful of ice raids. Their fear, their exhaustion is as constant as thirst. And it can only be quenched by something new being introduced. So you don't get used to hunger. It just gets worse. You only get more and more hungry and more and more desperate to be filled. This reminds me of a often quoted line from James Baldwin in the 50s and 60s. He says, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is uh, to be in a rage almost all of the time because this isn't getting better. It's just getting worse every day. And if you're awake to it, it's just that bad. This is hunger and this is thirst for righteousness in a land and time of injustice and rage is just extreme hunger. The kingdom, though, which has come and is coming, looks on that hunger and on that rage and brings not only relief but a feast. You will be filled. Everything you're hungry for, everything you're thirsty for will be super abundantly provided. Jesus is sharing the values of the kingdom. What matters and who matters What will last? What is actually durable? 
And it, it looks like the stuff that we take for granted as weak and unlasting and not at all durable, very fragile. You might wonder what you're supposed to do with all this. Because I've already told you that this isn't primarily a to-do list. Maybe you hear this and it's really good news. Because you deeply identify with one or more of those things. And if that's the case this morning, praise God. Praise God. Good news. Good news. Maybe you're hearing this and you're like the rich young ruler who encountered Jesus and, you know, he said, I've played by all the rules, religious and otherwise, and what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus answers, bankrupt yourself for others. And he walks away sad. And Luke is really sneaky in the way he tells that story because we don't really know whether that was sadness that comes from him counting the costs and kissing his former life goodbye or sadness because he keeps stubbing himself on the eye of the needle that he can't pass through with all these great riches. It's too hard and he misses out. Or maybe this vision, these beatitudes of who and what matters Maybe even how we're talking about it is so foreign to you. What you thought the whole game was about, that you're just kind of disoriented. You're just, I see some of these faces, like, I don't know what he's talking about right now. Maybe you were brought up to think that heaven and earth were so separate, that heaven was a place way up and out there where the cream of the crop got admission. So what's all this talk about the meek inheriting the earth? The meek, meek people are invisible. They leave things on the table rather than leveraging and maximizing and wringing every benefit out of everything and everyone. And the earth? The earth is like temporary place. It's only a commodity, it's not the end game. You can see how this would be pretty disorienting. Not only are the meek blessed, but they will inherit the earth. And that's a good thing. Whatever your thought process, whatever your experience coming to this text, maybe a key, maybe like the Dakota ring that you're into your elbow and the cereal box that you're pulling out, is that we primarily see Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. From this, these words from Jesus' lips show us Jesus. Yes, you heard me correctly. The Beatitudes are about Jesus and how we join Jesus. The kingdom is about Jesus and how we join Jesus. This is what all of the Sunday school answers have in common is that they're actually right. <laughs> if, if, if the question sounds like Jesus, the answer is probably Jesus, right? And even though this teaching comes at the very beginning of Jesus' teaching ministry that ends on Calvary's cross, the seeds for that cross are right here. Jesus is sowing the seeds of the cross at the very beginning of his ministry, before the cross was even an idea or a thought. You see, for Jesus, naked on the cross, being lifted up outside of the city gates, he is the poor one on his way to inheriting the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus, crying out to God in dereliction, the man of sorrows on the cross, he is the mourning one to be comforted. Jesus standing silently before Pilate without defending himself or even saying a mumbling word is the meek one 
set to inherit the earth. Jesus in the wilderness is the hungry one, the thirsty one, who became the bread of life, living water. And he was not filled by Satan's false promises, but by God's spirit, the very breath of God. Jesus telling the bandit on his side, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is the merciful one, receiving and making mercy possible for others. Jesus, the spotless lamb, asking God to forgive even those who are nailing him to the cross because they don't know what they're doing, is the pure one who not only sees God, but actually sits at God's right hand, sees God face to face from up close. Jesus, who breaks down the dividing wall of hostility to create one new human, is the peacemaker. God's son, whom God loves and is well-pleased. And we don't even have to mention Jesus, the persecuted one, the slandered one, who inaugurates the kingdom. The cross was known and was born by Jesus long before the actual wood cross was known and born by Jesus. We're starting to get the contours of the cross even from the beginning. We've been assured by Jesus' resurrection then, that this is really the way, the truth, and the life. That the cross wasn't a detour, but not incidental to, to following God, but actually the whole thing. Given this logic, whatever we do for the least, the lost, the last, the littlest, and the closest to death, we're doing for Jesus and we're actually doing with Jesus. So in teaching these kingdom values, we're also shown how valuable the cross is for us. It's the way of joining Jesus in the kingdom. It's by Jesus' cross that we'll remember in a moment around this table that we've been rejoined to God. We've been made right we don't even need fancy Bible words like righteousness. Being made right means you are set on your side and God is picking you up and making you right. And we are being made whole by Jesus' brokenness. We are being made whole. And we're being called and equipped and fed to share in the shape of the life of the world to come. So it's by being close then with those whose lives are already more cross-shaped than our own, that the kingdom breaks in now. And it's by forming our own lives in the shape of the cross, this is actually how you can grow in these beatitudes, by forming your own life in the shape of the cross, more importantly, your own life in the shape of Christ by growing in Christ who bore the cross and was raised by God's Spirit, by God's Spirit, then you can become an heir, comforted, filled with righteousness, a giver and receiver of mercy, and one who sees God, God's own kin. And often this isn't by something that we have to do. It's by things that we have to offload. This is a, the master story from Philippians 2, that Jesus, being in the very form of God, empties himself 
empties himself to become the form of a slave, to become human. And that's where, exactly where God raises him and exalts him. And that's where we join in. So uh, our, our activity there is offloading our power, emptying our privilege, getting rid of those things that insulate us from either encountering the meek and poor and mourning or getting rid of those things that insulate us from becoming the weak and the meek and poor and mourning. So much of our lives is built up around not becoming these people who are so fit for the kingdom. These kingdom values and this valuable cross become the entry point to a new world with a new set of rules. This makes sense. If Jesus is Lord, Jesus is in charge. That means he's got his own rules. He's got his own politics. He's got his own sense of what's important and what's going to last and where this whole thing is going. It should challenge us in our everyday engagement, like big and small, capital P politics and lowercase p politics. Because it's been said that the church doesn't, ha- doesn't like have a politic. The church is a politic. This body of Christ has its own rules that are made and formed by Christ. This body of Christ, for us to be true to ourselves, is to be true to these values, and more importantly, to, this, to the valuable ones who are included in these values. So we have to constantly struggle to break out of the fear and like the calcified lanes and paradigms that are presented to us so that we can bear witness to who and what is truly valuable in the kingdom of God. Sometimes when we do this, it'll be really predictable. Just because, just because people have done it doesn't mean that it's not a good thing. So feeding the poor, great thing. It's kind of the boring thing that Christians have done for a long time and should continue to do. It also might be surprising even to us where this is going to take us. Our politics will become, per, will be personal, but they will not be private. All this happens in a place with the people. It happens here. It happens in Christ's presence, the same Christ who promised to be with us. Because that's the good news of the kingdom, that Jesus is with us. And because that's true, We must be with Jesus in the face of the poor and mourning and meek and hungry and mistreated and merciful and pure and peacemaking and persecuted. And being with them, being like learning from them, being their students, but also pronouncing God's blessing on them, echoing these words to these pitiful people that I don't pity you, I bless you. And despite all the evidence to the contrary, might even create a blessing in us, might actually join us to what Jesus is doing around us. You all pray with me. Lord, I hope any of this made sense because I'm having a hard time making sense of this. This is so counterintuitive to the way I think, the way I live what I hold to be valuable, what I spend my money on and time on and dreams on. Lord, begin to to change that. 
in me, change that in us. Form us uh, to be participants in your kingdom, ones who day by day look a little bit more like Jesus because we've spent time with Jesus. We've had our lives changed by Jesus. We've been crucified with Jesus and raised with him. Thanks for this explosive kingdom message. Help us not look away from it. Help us keep uh, looking at it and examining ourselves in light of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.